This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors of Michigan Politics and Government. There were plenty of things going on in the state capitol in Lansing this week, as usual. And that includes some of the characters who continue to make our lives interesting. We'll hear about some of all that later in the program. But I want to focus on the curious division of opinion on prospects for the nation's minority party. That would be the Republicans in next year's election. There is always speculation about whether one party or the other can survive after it loses an election which the Republicans did in 2020, and as they did back in 2008, and in 1992, and before that in 1974, especially the Watergate year. Of course, the Democrats have gotten clobbered, or at least lost a few times as well, like in 1980, 1994, 2010, and as recently as just five years ago in 2016. The political chattering class can't stop arguing about whether the losing party can even survive. And it's amazing how many so-called experts think they cannot. Naturally, they're always wrong. Each losing party always recovers, sometimes as early as the next election. But this year, the speculation about the Republicans seems more frenetic and intense and yes, polarize than I've ever seen before. Most of the news is dominated by headlines and sound bites that go something like this. For example, Republican in full meltdown mode. Demographics will doom GOP to extinction. Republicans cannot even hold on to their traditional country club members anymore. White Higher-income, college-degree voters are becoming Democrats. GOP now depends on low-income, low-education, older white voters, but those types are disappearing every day. Republicans lost cities long ago. Now they're losing suburbs. Republicans are doing well in rural areas, but nobody lives there compared with everywhere else. GOP has been taken over by crackpots like Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Donald Trump holding GOP in thrall. No Republican dares do anything without his approval, and it's killing them. If Republicans in Congress do not approve a bipartisan commission to investigate the January 6th storming of the U.S. Capitol, They'll pay the price at the polls in 2022. U.S. voters like Biden's American Rescue Plan, but all Republicans in Congress voted against it, and it will cost them next year. Will 2022 be one of those rare years when the party that controls Congress and the White House actually gains seats and solidifies its power? Perhaps permanently as the Republicans disappear forever? That list goes on and on. 
And it's the majority of what you see and read and hear, to be sure. But there is a counter-narrative that seems to ignore everything I just listed, and it also refocuses everyone's attention on some historical truths that keep repeating themselves, like the party that controls the White House, whether it has a majority in Congress or not, almost always loses seats in the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate in the president's first midterm election. It happened to Dwight Eisenhower in 1954 and Lyndon Johnson in 1966 and Ronald Reagan in 1982 and Bill Clinton in 1994 and Barack Obama in 2010. In fact, the president's party usually usually loses a lot of seats. If it's a president who wins a second term, the second, the same thing, excuse me, happens in the middle of his second term. Or if it doesn't, as it didn't for Bill Clinton back in 1998, the few seats Clinton's Democrats managed to gain were not enough to take back the majority. Here are a few other of the type of headlines and sound bites that run counter to the doomsday for Republican scenario I ticked off a minute ago. Like, Democrats never learn. They always overreach, and they're always punished by the voters. Democrats taken over by socialist left. Bernie Sanders didn't need to get elected. He's president anyway. Democrats obsequious to Black Lives Matter, and it will cost them. Wokeness has Democrats in a vice, and it's killing them. Democrats have become the party of the cancel culture. Democrats want to raise taxes. Is that a surprise? Democrats put the national debt accumulated by George W. Bush, Obama, and Donald Trump on steroids. Biden's multiple trillions of dollars of deficits will come back to haunt his party. All of that is why the National Republican Congressional Committee just announced the greatest April fundraising haul ever. That is why the latest Washington Examiner poll reports enthusiasm for Republican candidates in the 2022 midterm elections is ahead of enthusiasm for Democrats by double digits. That is why a recent poll of battleground states finds President Biden's approval among independents at only 34 percent. Democrats win only 17 percent of independents in these swing states on a generic ballot. That is why voters in Pennsylvania, a state that supposedly went to Biden, just overwhelmingly voted to dramatically limit the emergency powers of their Democratic governor. That is why the latest CBS News poll shows Republican support for former President Trump is still at historic levels, with 89% still supporting Trump's economic views, 80% supporting Trump's leadership style, 88% supporting Trump's tough stance on immigration, 73% supporting Trump's views on race, 77% agreeing with the way Trump treated the media, and most importantly, 
67% believing Joe Biden is not the legitimate winner of the 2020 election. That is why voters in the latest McLaughlin & Associates poll would favor Donald Trump over Vice President Kamala Harris, 49 to 45% for the 2024 presidential election. Biden has only been president for a little over 100 days. He supposedly got the most votes of any candidate in history. He should be wildly popular right now, considering we're still in the honeymoon phase of the presidency. Instead, Americans are decidedly lukewarm. Why? Okay, let's turn to Michigan and another subject. Capital insiders say voters will associate Governor Gretchen Whitmer with lack of bipartisanship. Specifically, when asked, What Governor Gretchen Whitmer will be associated most with, other than the pandemic and roads, during the 2022 gubernatorial election, a solid 48% plurality said she'd be most associated with, quote, not working in a bipartisan way with the legislature, unquote. That was one of the findings of a Capital Insider survey conducted early this month by Michigan Information Research Service and Epic MRA, a Lansing-based polling firm. I will go into details on that not only next week, but I'll have more than just that particular question. Stay tuned for our first guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have with us on the line uh, my favorite Michigan public high school teacher, Ann Jacoby Russo. Ann Russo, thanks for reappearing on The Political Insider. Oh, always a pleasure. <laughs> okay, uh, look, you've been on a roller coaster ride this past academic year. I'm not going to go way back to the start of the pandemic in March of 2020 and the end of the last year because we've kind of covered that when you've been on before last year and early this year. But I want to ask you, uh, what has it been like for you as a teacher at Holt High School where you teach, I think, English and film? Um, beginning in September of last year, maybe it was August, uh, and on through the academic year up until now, almost the end of May and into June. I mean, what kind of a experience has it been for you? Well, roller coaster is a good uh, phrase to describe it for sure. It's been um, it's been interesting. It's been a learning experience. It's overall, looking back, my seniors were done yesterday, um, and I have about half of my students are seniors, so that was a big deal. It's really been, um, I don't know, it's been up and down. We started the the school year completely virtual, which we had been since March 13th, you know, of 2020, and we, we decided to, my schedule was, pretty crazy. I hadn't taught speech for for over a decade. So I picked up one section of speech, all seniors, 
And I had an intern teacher from MSU on top of that. And she and I uh, were given permission to go to the school um, to work. So even though students were not allowed there, um, we were able to go into the classroom. And that helped a lot. Well, was this around some... Thanksgiving or Christmas? When, when did this happen? Um, oh, that's a good question. The year's kind of a blur. But we, uh, we were in the school pretty much from the start. So we started in August, I think, um, or maybe we went right after Labor Day. Honestly, I like I said, it's a blur. But we but the um, students district... were the students were online virtual. Yes. While you yes. and your substitute intern were in the school physically, all your yes. students were home or wherever they were doing stuff yes. online. Okay. And Did... most of my colleagues were as well. So um, really, it was an issue. If there were issues with Wi-Fi, which both of my two seventh grade kids were home. Um, you know, on Wi-Fi. So even though I upgraded to the best Wi-Fi I could get, it still lagged a little bit. So um, our district allowed us to go into the classroom um, at some point. I, I honestly can't remember the date, but it worked really well because my intern needed some normalcy, um, if there's any kind of sense of that for this last year. And so did I. And being in my classroom, it just it feels like I'm a teacher. So my identity, not to get all... <laughs> Freudian, but my identity as a teacher <laughs> was definitely challenged this year. I had never been so nervous about starting a school year in 20 years of teaching. And to think I had to teach to my laptop screen a sea of, you know, up to 29 faces, it was absolutely terrifying. And as soon as I met my students, met, you know, use that term loosely online. Um, especially my seniors, but my juniors were great too, are, are great. Um, it, it eased almost all of my anxieties. And we were learning together. And the, the technology was obviously a learning curve. And there were days when even at school with our amazing technolo- our technology and Wi-Fi, there were days when it would go down. And you just have to roll with all the punches. And um, I, I have said the entire year, my, my students, and it sounds so corny, but my students made me feel so at ease this year. And they were good sports about everything. I started a brand new graphic novels class this year, the worst year in the history of teaching to start a new class. Um, but it had already, you know, been in the process and um, we've gotten grant money and a lot of funding for it. And we had no idea we were we weren't going to return to school. So logistically, for that one section, that second hour, second semester, it was only half a year. Um, we just ended it on uh, yesterday. That was a logistical nightmare. So to have most of my students still at home, I would say for me, it was between 30 and 40 percent were actually in person. So once students were given the choice in Holt to go back face to face which happened right before spring break, right in mid-April, I had about 35% of my students actually come in face-to-face. So I'm still um, teaching to a screen while I have humans sitting in my classroom behind trifold screen protectors, also on their laptops or their, their, you know, Chromebooks. And it was very surreal because, we all were excited to see, like, actually see humans in our classroom again. But at the same time, we did not um, farm out our third, like, our teaching, our virtual teaching to a third party. We chose not to do that as a union and just as a district. So instead of having our virtual learners 
use, you know, a different platform or a different um, form of technology for their the rest of the year. We were teaching to them consecutively to a screen while we had, you know, students in the room. So you can imagine what it's like when we're having a discussion and I'll ask a question and the student in the classroom face-to-face wants to answer. We all have to mute ourselves so we're not getting feedback. And then, oh, it was just... (laughs) (laughs) Looking back already, it was just kind of a farce, but we managed to do a lot of learning. And I will tell you, I am so tired of hearing about the learning loss for this year because I feel like our students and our staff, we were put in a situation where we had to really be creative and flexible and the soft skills, you know, maybe not the academic, the true academic standards and benchmarks were all met as they would in a normal year, but we, we learn things about ourselves and as teachers and learners that we would have never experienced um, had we not been in this situation. So maybe I'm just, you know, a Pollyanna looking at it that way. But I will tell you, I am so tired of hearing people just, you know, moan and cry about all of the academic learning that was lost this year. It's just it's not true. I, I didn't see that at all. Well, that is heartwarming, uh, Ann Russo, and if I understand what you've just said correctly, I mean, you went, I would say, three-quarters of the year all virtual. I mean, you were in the school, and then just in the last month and a half or two months, uh, you finally got uh, some students back in the classroom, but a lot of them were still uh, virtual, and you had to mix between the yes. virtual and the people in front of you. Uh, that that really must have been a challenge. But you say you're pretty optimistic that when this year comes to a close in the next week or so completely, uh, you think maybe the academic experience of what your students learned this year is not as deficient compared to what a normal year in the past would have been like? No, and definitely not what a lot of uh, opponents of virtual learning. I mean, I didn't love it, but we we had to learn different skills and different technology that we would have never been pushed to do, um, like I said, in a normal face-to-face year. So the learning was different. It wasn't ideal. It wouldn't be my first choice, but looking back already with half of my students, you know, finishing the year yesterday, I just think that it was... It was a year that we can put in the books, um, like, in a really positive light. Okay, listen, there's so much more I want to ask you, but we're out of time. we got to end this segment, <laughs> uh, but we'll get you back at some point in the future. Thank you, Ann Russo, yes. Hold High School teacher par excellence for being our guest. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. I'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are very fortunate to have with us on the line Mike Benarian, and he is Communications Director for Michigan Rising Action. Mike Benarian, welcome to the Political Insider. Thanks for having me, Bill. Okay, I just want to ask you, uh, what is Michigan Rising Action? We had your uh, previous uh, executive director, Tori Sachs on the show uh, maybe half a year ago, but she evidently has taken a new job with Michigan Freedom Fund, and you and a cohort have come in and taken over. 
with Michigan Rising Action. Can you explain what Michigan Rising Action is for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's pretty simple. We're a organization that's dedicated to holding liberal politicians in Michigan and any special interest group that supports them accountable. And in addition, we're also committed to advancing conservative principles by promoting good policy. Okay. And uh, Michigan Freedom Fund, what do they do? You know, we, we have a lot of similar goals in that we are trying to advance the conservative cause and we tend to push the more uh, intellectual side of things. We want to work to ensure that both organizations of ours, that every citizen is given the most accurate and up-to-date information so that we can drive a balanced policy conversation in the state of Michigan. So a lot of similar goals in that we're pushing that, that conservative uh, angle on things. Well, this week, you guys were pretty active. Um, You announced that you had filed a complaint with the United States Internal Revenue Service against Governor Gretchen Whitmer about the way she paid for or didn't pay for, at least uh, in the beginning, her trip back in March to Florida to visit her ailing father. You also Mm -hmm. put out a report... uh, suggesting that the Whitmer administration significantly underreported COVID-19 deaths in nursing homes. And you also called attention to skyrocketing wait times at the Secretary of State uh, Jocelyn Benson office, uh, forcing her to testify in front of the House Oversight Committee and explain herself. Maybe you could just go through those three things and starting with the IRS complaint, what's that all about? Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly been a busy week and it's, it's kind of sad. You know, it's not like we plan for these things. It just goes to show how this entire administration, not just Whitmer, but even going to Benson has just been a disaster. And um, the, the IRS complaint in particular is interesting because we have new developments that came out yesterday, but Up until this point, everyone's familiar with this Florida trip, broadly speaking, at this point. Uh, But Governor Whitmer had claimed that this flight was paid for by using 501c4 nonprofit funds. And Michigan Rising Action filed a formal IRS complaint calling for an investigation into the misuse of 501c4 funds for personal benefit. And she was already beginning to face uh, an investigation by the FAA. And now she's fearing this IRS investigation that we had called for. And this new development from yesterday, she's desperately trying to reverse course now, saying that this flight is now being paid for by her campaign committee. And this now raises new questions over the legality of a campaign committee paying for the personal expenses of an individual. individual. Um, But the kind of the, the timeline and how this developed, we had this nonprofit, Michigan Transition 2019, that had come out and said that they had paid for this trip. And the governor had indicated this was a personal trip, which is not within the stated purpose of that nonprofit. And their payment uh, for Governor Whitmer, therefore, was not really legal. So we filed that IRS complaint and exposed that. And the governor's attorney yesterday informed the House Oversight Committee that they're changing their story and they're using campaign committee funds. And this was clearly uh, a decision 
made in the governor's inner circle to say that dealing with a Michigan campaign finance law uh, violation was preferable to a federal investigation that she was facing. So I think they went judge shopping and they conveniently found that uh, Michigan's top elections official, uh, Jocelyn Benson, would be determining a campaign finance violation. Yeah, well, ironically, uh, you filed that complaint about a campaign finance violation with Jocelyn Benson, the secretary of state, the same person who was forced to testify in front of the House Oversight Committee of the House of Representatives in Lansing about uh, her alleged negligence over the past year in terms of wait times at the Secretary of State office uh, Mm -hmm. for people trying to get business done there involving motor vehicles and everything else. This has nothing to do with elections. That's another responsibility for the Secretary of State. But this is motor vehicles, which may be more important to a lot of people than election law. So mm-hmm. what what's going on there anyway? Well, I think this is one of those uh, those dinner table issues where most people have had this problem over the last year trying to renew tabs or, or get new license plates. The, the wait times at the Secretary of State have skyrocketed. And it's uh, largely because Benson has has implemented a year-long policy of appointment-only visits, and she's eliminated the previous system that provided a a more reliable and accessible Secretary of State where you could go and walk in and get these appointments. And she's doubled down on this policy, and she said that she intends to make it permanent. Well, so in other words— As far as she's concerned, nobody could ever just walk into a secretary of state office as they've done historically forever until she took office uh, and get their business done, uh, however long it took once they got there. She's saying basically Mm -hmm. you got to make an appointment, right? Uh, But then didn't we hear a lot of complaints about, you know, you try and make an appointment and sometimes uh, they can't accommodate you very quickly and you have to wait weeks or months to get an appointment. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I think there was a lot of pushback, wasn't there, from legislators and not just Republicans, some Democrats yeah. saying, wait a second here. Uh, can't we at least have the option of walk-in in some situations where, you know, trying to make an appointment in advance is not practical? Uh, what's going on? Yeah, th- that's what we heard out of the House Oversight Committee yesterday, which ironically she was late to. She was late for her own appointment to testify in front of this committee and made everybody else wait. I mean, it couldn't get a better example of what's going on with the Secretary of State than that. And um, she provided nothing but excuses on this. And she did, as you said, receive bipartisan pushback uh, from Democrats and Republicans that while she kept saying this this uh, this new system would work in theory, uh, it's not working now. And in the meantime, shouldn't we be allowing people to walk in as they always have. And really, you know, they got into a lot of different issues regarding the access to technology, because a lot of these appointments you have to book online. We have rural areas in Michigan that they don't have reliable Internet. You have individuals in our uh, aging population that don't really have that accessibility. And so these were all things that she, she acknowledged were problems, but just continued to double down and say, well, but this system is better. And, and as, as I had mentioned, the, the bipartisan pushback on that during this committee was 
yeah, but it's not working. You, you say it's, it's better, but it's not working. And she just didn't have answers. And it's disappointing after a year of this, she doesn't have answers. Well, do you get the impression uh, when she left the committee meeting that she's changed her mind at all or that the pushback from legislators convinced her, you know, maybe I ought to have a walk-in option? uh, Or do you get the feeling she's just going to continue doing what she's been doing? Uh, My impression was that she was trying to seem diplomatic and give the committee answers that they would be happy with. But I don't see the... Uh, Secretary of State's office being any more proactive on this than they have been in the last year, I would hope that at this point our legislature would start to step in and push policies that force her hand because Michiganders can't wait for this kind of uh, uh, development here. And uh, we we would hope that, that something would happen to fix these long wait times. Yeah. We're going to have to take a break here, but we're going to come right back with Mike Benarian of Michigan Rising Action. Stay tuned. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We are back with Mike Benarian. He is Communications Director for Michigan Rising Action, and we talked about a couple of actions that Michigan Rising Action took this week. But I'd like to ask about a third, which is the suggestion that you made uh, that the Whitmer administration significantly underreported COVID-19 deaths in nursing homes. You were kind of keying off... Uh, the journalist Charlie LaDuff, who reported in Deadline Detroit that it appears Michigan, quote, wildly undercounts COVID deaths in its long-term facilities, unquote. So what did Michigan Rising Action make of that? Yeah, well, I, I think a lot of us have been following this for the last year, where Governor Whitmer has refused to give answers to the people of Michigan over the devastating effects of her nursing home policy. And she ignored calls over the last year to stop mixing COVID positive patients with uninfected populations of the elderly. So now this new report is suggesting that it could be worse than they had previously reported. And what we had done at Michigan Rising Action when this report had come out was again call on Attorney General Dana Nessel to investigate her handling, Whitmer's handling of COVID related nursing home deaths. It was a pretty uh, damning report, frankly, that came out of Deadline Detroit with uh, Charlie LaDuff's article. Yeah, the state uh, officially attributes 5,600 out of Michigan's 19,000 COVID deaths. That's like a little over a quarter to long-term care facilities based on self-reporting from those facilities. However... According to LaDuff, new data suggests that the long-term care facilities-related deaths, quote, may be 100 percent higher than the state reports, unquote. I mean, do you think there is any chance that Dana Nessel, who I think is pretty much on the same page with Governor Whitmer on just about everything, is really going to take your complaint seriously or your demand for an investigation seriously? Well, I, I don't think she's going to investigate it. And to your point, though, about taking it seriously, it doesn't matter what political party you're a part of. When you have uh, 5,600 deaths reported and potentially thousands more 
that's something that everybody should be taking seriously. And the fact that Dana Nessel hasn't investigated up until this point and refused to a year ago when we knew there was a problem, it, it's despicable. And it goes to show very poor character uh, out of our attorney general and, and also obviously Governor Whitmer as well. Um, but at the end of the day, I think all we're asking is a simple question. It's an important one. Why has the state not been collecting this information? Because this new data is suggesting that they're not tracking this info. And if we look at some of these new files coming out, we can trace them back to nursing homes. It's something the state could have done. And I, I don't see why we don't have an answer to the question, how many people died of COVID after catching it in a long-term care facility? Uh, the sad reality is that the state did give an answer for having a non-answer, and it's because they said it's because it's too time-consuming. And I don't think that's acceptable to, to give that answer to the people of, of, of Michigan, and we deserve to know the truth on this, not excuses. Okay, Mike Benarian uh, with Michigan Rising Action. I want to ask you about something else, and that's another self-inflicted injury suffered by Governor Grand, uh, Governor Whitmer this week, and that is her trip to an East Lansing bar called Landshark this week, in which she was one of 13 uh, reveling around a table uh, in violation of her own order that no more than six should gather in such a situation. What about that? Mm. Well, I, I'd love to say I was surprised, but unfortunately, she has a track record of, of breaking her own rules. And yeah, we have a situation where she refused to lift these restrictions on restaurants while uh, other states have already done so. And these restaurants have seen massive fines for violations over the last year. And then she's seen maskless indoors with a large group of people, uh, as you said, exceeding that six-person limit. And the, the, the hypocrisy here is just nauseating at this point. Um, her administration has just been ripe with these stories of endless missteps and, and hypocrisy. And uh, we've just seen a lot of it happen in the last year. And I think, uh, unfortunately, it's happened so much that a lot of us have, have forgotten all of these missteps. Another thing that came out this week was a survey of Capital Insiders uh, by Michigan Information Research Service, MERS as it's called, with their polling firm Epic MRA, uh, which found that other than the pandemic and roads, uh, in the 2022 gubernatorial election, if Gretchen Whitmer runs again, a solid 48 percent plurality said she'd be, quote, most associated with not working in a bipartisan way with the legislature, unquote. Now, this survey uh, consisted of, you know, lobbyists, uh, officials within state government, public relations firms, others who work in and around state governments, kind of inside the Capitol bubble audience of nearly 700 people who were surveyed. These are kind of real insiders, and they think there's a real problem for the governor in the sense that the public thinks she basically has just blown off the legislature for more than a year, if not two and a half years, uh, what does Michigan Rising Action make of all this? Well, it makes sense. Uh, you have a governor. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it makes sense that this is how they would view her because you have 
a a governor who's who's shown her true colors, shown her character, and it's it's been shown to be very poor. When you're when you're looking to work with other people, you have to have a degree of honesty that you come to the table with. And everything she's done in the last three years has indicated that she's not doing things honestly. She's not making good faith efforts. And you could look at at everything from. Uh, Robert Gordon uh, leaving as her health director and and leaving with a confidentiality agreement and and one hundred and fifty five thousand dollars, not giving any reasoning to the legislature as to why he was leaving. Uh, unemployment's been falling apart. And you had uh, a similar situation where the head of unemployment was paid off eighty six thousand dollars and under a confidentiality agreement. These, these are not uh, decisions that are made or practices that people find very trusting. So how are you going to come to the table in a bipartisan way and work with the other side when you haven't been honest with anybody throughout the last three years? Uh, but what I think is important to highlight is that all of these stories that we could be listing here, it's, it's not just a one-off situation. It's her governing style. And her, her pattern for governing is essentially hide information, hope you don't get caught, and then lie and say you're done talking about it when you do get caught. Uh, but I, I, I can tell you that she's not going to get away with it. Clearly, the voters uh, don't view her as someone that should be leading our state at this point. And Michigan Rising Action is, is definitely going to continue to hold Governor Whitmer accountable for all of her actions here. Uh, and I do encourage everyone who is interested in following uh, these scandals that are happening currently or other stories to uh, reach out to us uh, on Twitter. You could follow us at MI Rising Action. And you can also visit our website, michiganrisingaction.org. Yeah, Mike Benarian, another question that MERS Epic MRA asked was in their survey, they say uh, Gretchen Whitmer in the 2022 gubernatorial election, how do you think her handling of the pandemic will impact her chances at reelection? And in response, 54% said her handling of the pandemic would decrease her chances because people will see her efforts as too restrictive. Over half found mm-hmm. that to be true. Only 35% felt that uh, her handling of the pandemic would increase her chances because people will see her efforts as proper. And 10% uh, said they would have no impact. Uh, how do you look at that? Well, I think that the popular consensus at this point has been that she is overstepped. And then you look at situations with the nursing home. You look at her hypocrisy by going out to bars, flying down to Florida, uh, her own administration officials taking vacations during COVID spikes, her husband trying to, this was a year ago this past week, trying to get his boat in the water by name dropping her. These are not things that are indicative of someone who has handled a a crisis like this properly. And I would be shocked if voters didn't feel the same way and and didn't vote uh, against her in the coming election. Um, Like I said before, it makes sense. A lot of this is just logical. Well, you can't get away with doing so much wrong and not have consequences. Yeah, well, Mike Benarian, I I could go on and on asking you questions. And, you know, I could ask you, like, what other projects are you guys working on? But, you know, the governor herself keeps giving you so much unsolicited (laughs) material. All you have to do is sit there and wait for her to do something else wrong, right? Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, keep an eye out on these future projects, michiganrisingaction.org, or follow us on Twitter at MI Rising Action. 
Okay, Mike Benarian, Communications Director, Michigan Rising Action. Thanks for being our guest. Yeah, thanks for having me. We'll be back next week with still more.